to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. Good morning again. So, as we introduced, or as I introduced earlier, it's the Renew Together series for the next three weeks. And the theme of this week, week number one, is to the ends of the earth. So our focus scripture is is Matthew 28, 16 to 20. And this is all centered around this concept of missions. Uh, A mission, according to dictionary, being an important assignment or a task. And missionaries being people who are called or assigned to carry out that, that task or assignment. So with that in mind, I thought this morning we'd seek to kind of pop into the lives of of a few select missionaries throughout the years and highlight three traits that I believe they all shared, despite the fact that they'd obviously never met. They were separated by hundreds, even thousands of years and a lot of distance. So these three traits, I believe, are self-denial, an uncompromising attitude, towards the mission and the message. So uncompromising, if you're not familiar with that word, it's like determined or unshakable. Some people might even say diehard, iron-willed or single-minded. And the third thing would be a heart for people. So that's self-denial, an uncompromising attitude and a heart for people. So our first lot, our first group, it was a group of men and they lived about 2,000 years ago. Uh, you'd recognize them. Some of them were fishermen. Uh, some of them were in finance, you could say. Uh, and they had, they had different social standings. They had different backgrounds. They had different personalities. They had different attitudes. But one thing in their life united them. So one day, a, a rabbi, a teacher, came and he encountered them. And he asked them in that moment, will you follow me? And they did. Uh, for over three years, they, they ate with him slept alongside him, they learned from him, and it became quickly apparent to them that this man wasn't a a normal man. This man was different. Uh, In fact, that group came to believe something pretty extraordinary, really, that this man was someone who had been prophesied in their holy scriptures for hundreds of years. The Messiah, uh, the chosen one, the, the savior of their people. But everything changed one night. Their beloved leader, he was arrested, beaten, whipped, nailed naked to a cross in front of his friends and his family, and he he ended up dying a few hours later. It would have been incredibly painful and agonizing, and they witnessed all of it. And this group of men, they they scattered after that. They feared for their own lives, and uh, everything seemed pretty dark. But only for a time. Because their rabbi, their leader, actually started to appear to them again. Not as a ghost or as a vision in a dream, but real flesh and blood. One time he even cooked dinner for them and ate some of it himself. And uh, one of the apostles, his name is Thomas, he said, I'm not going to believe it until I can put my hands in the nail holes. So Jesus appears and let Thomas put the hands in the nail holes. On the scars, sorry, from the nail holes. 
So Matthew 28, our focus scripture, picks up from this point onwards. So if you've got your Bibles or your devices, it's Matthew 28, 16 to 20. And it says, Then the eleven apostles went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. So, for some context, this is likely the mountain that they stood on. It's, uh, it's Mount Arbel. Have you been there, Jeremy? Have you seen it? No, pass. John? John has. Nice. It's the tallest mountain by the Sea of Galilee. There's a couple of slides of it. That's what it looks like from the top. Couldn't find a sunny day. It was so hard to find a slide of a sunny day. Now, as the disciples walked up there to, to meet Jesus, they would have been able to see the fishing docks where Jesus had called many of them to follow him, or the towns where Jesus had performed many miracles, or the place where the Sermon on the Mount was preached, or the spots where Jesus fed the thousands, or the, the Sea of Galilee itself, where Jesus walked on water and calmed the storms. I like to imagine that they would have been sharing some of those stories as they walked up there, as they neared the top. Everyone must have been excited for the future. Their rabbi is back. When they see Jesus, the Bible says that they worship him. But the Bible also says that some doubted. I love that the Bible includes little details like this. It's almost a throwaway comment. And I'm thinking, who doubted? Was it Thomas again? You doubt one time and you get the nickname Doubting Thomas for all of church history. I remember, it reminds me of a story where uh, a guy in my studies, uh, first year, first like week, we had to go around and introduce ourselves, and he stood up and introduced himself by saying he was a guy who really liked cheese. Well, he was dubbed cheese for the rest of our studies. I don't even remember what his real name was. Cheese was a good guy. <laughs> but it, it does get the mind worrying a little bit, doesn't it? What do you mean some of them doubted? Doubted that Jesus was really back from the dead? I mean, they'd felt the scars in his hands. Maybe they doubted their spot on the group. Did they belong here? Were they really suited for this? Maybe they, could, they doubted if they could even keep following him. But notice, the Bible doesn't record Jesus addressing the doubt. He just continues with the command to go. And that included all of them, the doubters as well. And what a command. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, to a group of first-century Jewish men, the idea of intentionally going out and sharing with a bunch of strange nations this, this gospel, this good news, would have been completely foreign. You see, for thousands of years, they had been instructed to keep separate from other nations so that they wouldn't be tempted with their idols and, and traditions and false gods. Now Jesus is flipping the tables and saying, actually, you're going to be wading right into that mess in my name. If I was a disciple standing there, I probably would have been thinking, Jesus, I don't know if we can do this. 
we saw what they did to you. What do you think they're going to do to us? So now we're going to time travel a little bit to the late 1800s with a girl named Rosalie. So there. She was born in Australia and moved to New Zealand when she was about five years old. Rosalie was described as a woman of fine appearance, strong character, and deep devotion to her Lord. Her family attended Hanover Baptist Church in Dunedin, where she was baptized as a teenager, and she served faithfully in that church with her family. She was a trained teacher and had a special love for children. Now, when most girls her age were, um, would have probably been settling down, getting married, and, and starting families, Rosalie volunteered with another woman in her church to be the first missionary sent by the newly created New Zealand Baptist Missionary Society, NZBMS. And they were only looking for female missionaries for a special assignment to Bangladesh to work with women. Now, when this other woman from her church pulled out, Rosalie decided to go on alone. Now, her departure was a bit of a rush. Uh, her farewell was on the 28th of September, 1886. And she asked for the prayers of God's people, especially as difficulties would confront her. So the minister of that church, Alfred North, noted the occasion was unique, as Rosalie was not only the first global work, walker, worker for the New Zealand Baptist ministry to go overseas. She was actually the first woman sent by any New Zealand group from any denomination. And this Alfred North's ministry said this, and it proved to be very true in Rosalie's life. The work which lies before you is exceptionally hard and exhausting. He mentioned disappointments, pity, compassion, hope deferred, ignorance, time-consuming language study, the climate, and separation from loved ones. So this minister, he charged her, he said, go. In the assurance that his presence yields, go. In simple faith, in the power of the gospel of his love, go. Your heart overbrimming with love on all whom his love is sent and for whom his blood was shed. So shall the blessing of the Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost rest upon you forever. Amen. And so this 25-year-old Australian export turned Kiwi got on a boat and sailed to Calcutta, India. Now, if we fast forward 100 years, 1886, or roughly the late 80s, 90s, we meet a Miss Carol Ward. Now, she's a woman that was living in the United States. And as a teenager, she stepped out in faith and prayed sincerely, Lord, send me where no one wants to go. She came from a long line of faithful uh, missionaries. And Carol eventually got invited to go to southern Uganda, where she started working at a Bible school and got to express her love for children. In northern Uganda, just seven hours' drive from where she was, a horrible war had been raging for years. Now, does anyone remember this man? His name is Joseph Coney, and he was made famous all over the world. It was around about 2012, there was this thing going around called Hashtag Coney. And uh, it got out in the media that he was recruiting child soldiers for his army. Over 50,000 of them he recruited. And uh, he forced them to do terrible things, including human sacrifice, mutilation. It was, yeah, 
a thousand people were dying a day from, from ambushes, starvation, disease, and massacres. It was so bad, actually, that the last foreign ministries had, had last foreign ministries and missionaries had, had pulled out because several people had been killed. Carol was asked repeatedly, so she's in southern Uganda, that's in northern Uganda, and these Bible school students were coming to her and saying, you have to go and help these people. And she said to them, why do you want me to go? And the response back was, because no one else wants to go. So Carol, she, she remembered her prayer to the Lord all those years before. And she decided to respond to that call, even in the face of such terrifying danger. Now the US missionary agency, she rung them up and they refused to partner with her. They said, you're going to come back in a body bag and we can't be a part of this. Um, in the end, it was a small country church in the States that agreed to send her, uh, with two widows agreeing to support her financially. So as Carol drove from, from southern Uganda across the Nile River in her land cruiser alone, she crossed over into northern Uganda. Now these, these rebel soldiers led by that man, they would dress up as government soldiers and they would come out of the bush and they would stop cars. And um, if they stopped your car, they would drag you out, shoot you, loot your car and then burn it. And as you can imagine, if you're a woman, it could be a lot worse. So Carol details in her story that she's, she's driving down this road and she's passing these burnt out cars. And um, she starts to feel fear grip her. Could she actually do this? You see, in all these examples, these people had choices. Nobody was forcing them. The disciples could have heard what Jesus had to say, walked back down that mountain and gone back to their families, back to fishing, back to tax collecting, whatever they wanted. Rosalie could have stayed in Dunedin, maybe started a family, taught at the local school, and Carol could have stayed in South Uganda and continued working at the Bible school. Now all of these things, I think, on the surface, seem like perfectly fine things. God could have worked with those choices. But they chose to answer something specific, something that God had placed deep on their hearts. And making a choice to answer a call like that included a choice to deny all the normal securities that most people would find comfort in to deny your own self-interests and to step into a mission that Aratahi would say is handcrafted by God for such a time as theirs. What did Jesus promise the disciples? I will be with you always, right until the very end. So self-denial, the first trait. The second trait, an uncompromising attitude towards the mission and the message. So let's take Rosalie, for example. She ended up in uh, central Bangladesh, in this city. Oh, I wish Sarah was here so I could ask her how to pronounce this properly. Narayadganj. Yeah. And she started, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she started by walking the streets of this city uh, with a sari over her dress to indicate that she wanted to identify with the people. She began teaching the Bible to anyone who would listen. The Hindus didn't really seem to mind it. But the Muslims, they came up to her and they said to her straight, do you plan to teach that Jesus is the Son of God? 
because of course to Muslims, while they adamantly believe that Jesus existed and was a great prophet, to say Jesus is the Son of God is blasphemy. Now, I look, at, I look at that and I think, wow, in that moment, it would have been real easy to compromise the message a little bit and not rock the boat. To say, hi, maybe we just won't talk about that part. After all, Rosalie was young. She was in a strange land surrounded by majority foreign religions. And this was 10 years before women in Western countries even had the right to vote let alone raising their voice in opposition to some very vocal Muslim men. But Rosalie chose not to compromise the message. And when she said yes, that she was planning to teach that Jesus was the Son of God, they point blank said to her, we don't want you. Now even when these Muslim men got very noisy and heated, Rosalie stood her ground. And it got me thinking, could the church say the same thing today? Are we refusing to compromise the message? Or are we more concerned with not rocking the boat? Is, is the fear of man more prevalent than the fear of God? Now speaking of fear, Carol Ward drove alone down this highway to southern Uganda, northern Uganda, sorry, passing these burnt out and looted vehicles, drawing ever closer to a horrific war zone. I think she could have been excused for getting completely overwhelmed, for turning back and driving as fast as she could back to safety. If ever there was an opportunity for her to compromise the mission, to give in to fear, surely this was it. Now as fear loomed over her, and she felt it start to grip her, she said she felt God say something to her. He said, what are you doing here? And she said, I'm, I'm serving you, Lord. And he said, no, you're not. He said, I can't use someone in fear. And she said, well, Lord, then give me more faith. And he said, it's not more faith you need. It's more love. Why? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out all fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. John 4, 18. She said, that's the scripture that came to mind. Carol asked the Lord right then and there, baptize me in your love then. Did the Lord answer her prayer? I don't think we'd be talking about her quite the same if he didn't. How often does fear compromise the message? All the mission causing us either not to share or to make it more appealing to others. The truth is that a lot of us, and that includes myself, care quite a bit about what people think, don't we? There's this old Jerry Seinfeld bit. He said the number one fear of people was public speaking, and the number two fear is death. So that means at any given funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> and we laugh because it's kind of ridiculous. But if you want to go by the internet and buy records, it's actually true. Public speaking and the associated risk of being embarrassed or shamed in front of others is reportedly the most common phobia ahead of spiders, heights, and even death. 
One of the, another one of the things I love about the Bible is it's full of real people who make real mistakes and who God still really uses. So take Peter, for example. This is the leader of the apostles, the man charged by Jesus himself to look after his church, to shepherd his sheep. But even Peter is caught compromising the mission and the message because of the fear of people. So Galatians 2, 11 to 21. We read about this confrontation between Peter and the Apostle Paul. They're both apostles, but between Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. You see, Peter had been eating and fellowshipping with Gentiles, Bible term for non-Jewish believers, or non-Jewish, and that had been just fine. But then all of a sudden, these other Jewish Christians show up from Jerusalem, and Peter starts to withdraw and only eat with the Jewish Christians and not the non-Jewish Christians. And you ask why? The Bible says in verse 12, he feared them which were of the circumcision. He was afraid of the judgment of these Jewish believers. You see how ingrained this Jewish mentality to stay separate still was? It actually got so bad that some of the other Jewish Christians were starting to follow Peter's example and exclude themselves from the non-Jewish Christians. And then here comes Paul. <laughs> Someone who describes himself as a self-assessed least of the apostles. And he sees what's going on. Now is he, the self-assessed least, going to stand up to the, the head, the one who Jesus himself put in charge? Well, you bet he does. Because Paul sees that Peter is compromising the mission and the message. And what Paul says is recorded in Galatians 2.14. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? He goes on in verse 16 to say, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, speaking of the Jews, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. In essence, what he was saying is, why are you being a hypocrite, Peter? Why are you scared of what these other Jewish Christians think of you? And why are you trying to force non-Jewish people to live like Jews? as if that has anything to do with their salvation. goes on to say, salvation is through faith in Christ, not by what culture you're from, or by what you're wearing, or how much money you tithe, or any other inconsequential thing. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So that's the message. And Paul believed so strongly about that, that he confronted Peter. And it got me thinking about my own life. And I think, man, how often do I compromise the message because of my hypocrisy? Because the world watches how we live, eh? We've set it up here a lot. It watches how we treat each other. And what does Jesus say? John 13, 35. By this shall all men know ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. I'm like, man, how's the church doing on that front? Now finally, these missionaries we talked about, they shared a heart for people. And I don't think I have to 
make too strong of a case to convince you of that. Most of the apostles were killed for delivering this message. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul apparently was beheaded. John was exiled to an island to die alone. That's apparently after they tried to boil him alive. And he survived. Carol Ward spent 18 years in northern Uganda. She helped set up hundreds of churches. She ran national prayer campaigns where thousands of people would show up to pray and fast for the nation. She wept with those Ugandan people. She prayed next to them with her face in the dirt. And they begged God for restoration, for peace, and for healing. Interesting thing. They held a 40 days of prayer and fasting. I can't even imagine fasting for 40 days. 40 days of prayer and fasting. And after this prayer and fasting was done, Joseph Coney, one of his generals, who ended up coming to her mission and accepting Jesus, he said, when did you hold that first 40 days of prayer and fasting? And she gave him the date, and he said, the very next day, Joseph Coney said something very strange to him. He said, I lost my power last night. Something happened. Something's happened. Tens of thousands of people ended up going through the ministries that she helped set up, and they saw revival like we need. A great majority of those people that went went through her ministries, accepted Jesus as their saviour. Now Rosalie, she was committed through sickness and loneliness to these women and children of Bangladesh. In fact, once when she was lying in her hut, suffering from illness, having just spent time in prayer, she asked the, the owner of the house for some goat milk, but was careful to check that the woman's child would not receive less milk because she wanted some. That woman pledged to Rosalie, my child will not receive less milk because you're having some. Now, I'll admit, initially I judged Rosalie's testimony a bit harshly. When I was reading through it, I felt discouraged. <laughs> she was constantly unwell. and Constantly having people leave her or, or promise to come and help her like her sister and then not being able to. Uh, the ministry she, she set up, it was, it was hard going and long and, and she had some people come, yes. But I looked at it and I was like, man, God, compared to what you did through the apostles and compared to what you did through Carol Ward, it, it just seemed like Rosalie faced all these setbacks without much obvious fruit. She ended up dying at 31 years old from illness, far away from her family. And I couldn't help but think, oh, God, it just seemed like a bit of a waste. And then I read the following story. You see, many years after Rosalie passed away, a man comes into this mission camp wanting to be baptized. And the pastor there asked him, how did you become a Christian? And the man explained that as a boy, he'd witnessed a young female missionary praying in her hut. Um... He was there, he said. He was there when this young missionary woman made sure that his mother wouldn't give him less goat milk because of her. You see, he'd been so deeply impressed by this, by her piety and her selflessness, that he spent years searching for and eventually found her saviour. Now, I'll be honest, similar to I am now, I broke down after, after reading this. 
I, I wept and I said, God, forgive me. He said to me in his very gracious way, you have no idea what I've done through this woman. And that a life dedicated to me is never wasted. And it's like, I remember that the Lord calls, uh, he calls us to be good stewards and, and that he's the perfect steward. So all that we give to him, including our hearts, will always be taken care of, will never be wasted. Now, I knew that was going to be hard to get past. In doing research for this message, I started reading about a missionary, a man called David Livingston. He lived in the early 1800s. I remember hearing about him when I was a kid. This man was a machine. He was a doctor, an explorer, a missionary, and he had a fantastic mustache. He was one of the primary people involved in the ending of slave trade in Africa. The African people that he was serving found him dead, kneeling in front of his cot. He had died praying. He died from dysentery and malaria after giving away the last of his medicine. Now his body was transported back to the UK, the United Kingdom, where it was buried in Westminster Abbey. Now for those that don't know, in terms of um, English honour and death, I'd say being buried in Westminster Abbey would have to be pretty high up there, wouldn't it, Jeremy? Yeah, the top. It's, it's where all the kings and queens are buried. Sir Isaac Newton, Charles Dickens, Shakespeare, to name a few. But not all of David Livingston is buried in Westminster Abbey. You see, those African people he was faithfully serving alongside removed his heart before they sent away his body. And it was buried under a tree in Zambia. You see, those people knew this man may have originally been from far away, but he showed through his life that his heart was here with us. Jesus said, For where a man's heart, for where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. My question this morning is where would our hearts be buried? As we ponder the next few weeks, We've been encouraged to inquire of God as to where he is calling the heart of this church. And it can be so inspiring and challenging to read stories of these faithful missionaries, can't it? But their story can't have the last word. Because their imperfect examples, they were just seeking to follow the perfect example we're shown in Christ. Self-denial, Christ was the epitome of it left riches and glory that we couldn't even imagine to come here to his mission. The message he delivered was good news to some, but hard to hear for others. Why? Because it was the truth. He is the truth. Jesus combated injustice. He opposed hypocrisy. He fought for the outcasts, and he preached about God's standards of righteousness as opposed to man's. Just as Rosalie faithfully taught he also claimed to be the son of God. Ultimately, it was these things that got him killed. But that was all part of the plan because it was his heart for mankind to come. His heart for us. His heart to see healing. His heart to see restoration. His heart for reconciliation. The Lord of all creation died alone up on that cross. 
far away from his heavenly home and his father, he was laid to rest in a borrowed tomb. From the human perspective, it seemed like all had been lost, like hope had been crushed. What a waste. But we, we all know that it was actually death that was defeated that day, when the king of kings stepped out of that tomb. In a minute after we pray, I'm going to invite you to come forward. And tech team, if you could start playing that song. There's a bowl up the front. And in it is a small bracelet. We saw the woman making it in Bangladesh. As we select one, and as we, they're all the same, and as we put it on and go back to our seats, I just ask that we would, um, we would pray and ask ourselves and ask the Lord, Lord, where would you have our hearts be placed? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, where would you have our hearts be placed? And forgive us if our hearts are being placed in things that they shouldn't be. Thank you for the stories of all these faithful missionaries, Lord God, who only could have done what they did through your power and through your strength. So we ask for the same. Your power, your strength, the enabling of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church Podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.